Today's episode is brought to you by Replicated. Visit replicated.com and learn how to deliver and manage Kubernetes apps anywhere. All right, today we have Grant Miller, CEO of Replicated and the creator of Enterprise Ready joining us. And we're going to get into what Replicated does and some of uh, Grant's background. But I thought I'd start with, uh, Grant, a key question. Maybe you saw uh, a few weeks ago, the Goldman Sachs uh, analysts, some of the first-year analysts came out with a survey that they were working, I don't know, like 120 hours a week, like more hours that were actually in the week. And I noticed that uh, you started your career potentially as uh, an investment banking at Credit Suisse. Looks like you were there. <laughs> looks like a summer intern or something for, for four months. I wanted you to to tell us all the truth. Is uh, being, uh, I guess in your case, an intern is, is as difficult as these Goldman Sachs analysts make it sound? Uh, my experience was definitely not uh, to the point where I was poor and living in New York and I needed overtime. And so every week I would just put five hours of extra overtime on my payroll, like my, like, you know, my you know, Your time sheet or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And my boss eventually was like, Hey, like, why do you keep doing this overtime? He's like, do you have too much work? Maybe you cannot do it. And I was like, I was like, you're right. You know, I'll get it done during the week. And I just continued to put five hours extra overtime because I needed the extra time and a half, you know, of that, of that money. So, uh, and, and, my experience at, at Credit Suisse, I actually, the funniest part is I, I, I got there and they told me, oh, you're going to do all these projects. And I was like, great, sounds fun. And then instead they gave me all this Excel work to do. And they're like, okay, go in and every day, <laughs> like pull these numbers from these 60 Excel worksheets and put them into these six, in these, you know, 75. And I was like, this is basically data entry. And the, uh, the my manager was like, He's like, yeah, you could probably write a macro to do it, but no one's done that. And I was like, what's a macro? And so <laughs> I had him tell me what macros were at that point. And I like learned VB script, went to Mac and, and went into and Microsoft Excel and a bunch of stuff online and figured out how to write macros to do all the work. So I actually would come in the morning, click about 30 buttons that would run all these macros that I had. And then all the work that I had to do for the entire day was done in 15 minutes. Uh, and so then I would just wait around and I actually was doing some daylighting for another, for an internet startup. So I would just like do some side hustle work on that. And eventually, um, you know, that was kind of when I realized that like maybe a big company wasn't for me. Like maybe, maybe it wasn't where I, maybe you're not going to be uh, an investment banker for the rest of your life. You you knew then. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was like these, you know, I had some idea that I like really wanted to run up the board and they were like, no one cares. Like go back to like doing what you do, kid. No one cares. (laughs) That's too funny. Well, I think you're kind of ruining that, you know, you, you make it sound so easy because, uh, but it does seem like everyone that goes into investment banking, what they really learn is how to do PowerPoint and how to do Excel. So it doesn't, that seems to be very consistent, but it sounds like you are not working the 120 hours that these Goldman analysts did. So I guess that's good, but maybe no, you learned no, I was enough. Working, I was working less than probably two hours per week, but <laughs> charging out 45 as much as I could. So, um, yeah, I was just like hiding in my desk, you know, coming in hungover and, uh, and running my macros. And then by the end, the, the funniest part is at the end, I like showed them all the macros that I created <clears throat> and they were like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You can write macros. <laughs> and so they had me, I then, then I was brought into all these different projects to like do all this programming work for my last two weeks there. And, uh, and I was like, well, it's too bad. I'm, I'm leaving because uh, 
they were like no one had ever written a macro before it was it was so funny that's funny well that's it just kind of shows right it's like automation in any profession if you're the person smart enough to figure out how to automate things and anything that you do people are going to be like you're a genius so that was that was maybe yeah. like foreshadowing your your career in tech right you knew right away i'm going to automate things i'm not going to sit here and yeah. cut and paste for the rest of my life there's something here to this automate. yeah i just couldn't do it i couldn't handle the the drudgery yeah well, it looks like, so you got out of that, you, you know, your life as an investment banker, it was never to be, but, uh, but, you know, you sort of have a, an interesting background, something that we don't always see, um, from different founders, but it looked like you actually started some of your career in, uh, public relations and SEO. So I was, I was going to maybe just like, tell us a little bit about that. How'd you find your, like, in a for even for people that maybe don't know, like what really goes on in PR? How does that work? Yeah, this was you know, I, I kind of describe it as like customer acquisition was generally my, my, like where I focused. And it was just, uh, I was working for a consumer company based in Cincinnati consumer internet company called spark people. And the whole goal was like, let's get more people to use the service. And it was like, well, how do we do that? Right. And, and we'd hired all these PR firms for years that would like promise the world and deliver nothing. And then eventually I, I just started to figure out like, well, one of the opportunities is for us to just get you know, public, get stories written up about our users in all these women's magazines. So things like health or women's world or people magazine. And I just sort of broke down, I like reverse engineered what those stories look like. And then I just would source all of these, all this like content from our community and then bring it to reporters and be like, Hey, I've done all the work for you. Uh, do you want to publish this story? Or, you know, or here's the person that, you know, and, and the photos and everything else you need. And so you know, for me, public relations is, is kind of part sales, but it's just like any other role where it's like, just do as much work for the rest of the world that you possibly can. And, uh, and you'll be rewarded handsomely. So in that case, it was, you know, we would get great publications to cover our, you know, little crappy website. And, you know, people would talk about it and the, the trackers that we had. And ultimately, like it helped us build a big business and they built great tools. And, you know, that's still, I think that business is still off and running and doing pretty well. Um, you know, they've, they've changed a few times, but, you know, public relations is like anything. It's part sales. It's part, uh, sort of, you know, doing, doing the legwork and, and coming up with interesting stories, you know, find a, find a trend. People always look for threes, things that, that go in threes is really important in PR. So there, there's, there's sort of a, a really funny, uh, sort of related part to this, which Paul Graham from Y Combinator wrote this article years ago about like submarine content. And the whole idea is that basically anything that you ever read was like designed and, or like, you know, orchestrated on the back end by some, you know, PR lackey. And <laughs> it's kind of true. Like it's, it's kind of true. Like there's, there's very little, uh, you know, journalism or anything else. That's not like, you know, has somebody else's fingerprints on it or was, you know, written or penned or, you know, the outline was drawn up by somebody that had some type of, you know, invested interest in, in it being published. Uh, and so I, I, I think I always look at things around like, well, what's the angle? Where are, you know, where are people coming from? Who wrote this? Who does this benefit? I think it's an important thing to question uh, whenever you read anything. So there's some, there's some good life lessons learned in the, in the PR world. 
Yeah, I think uh, it's one of those things. I think once you know this, uh, you know, you can never kind of free yourself. Like you're always looking at things like what's the angle, right? You can't just be like when someone writes something that you think is genuinely interesting and good, you're like, hmm, I don't know if I can accept that. I think they, they had some kind of angle. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so which is good it's and good bad, though. right? You know, we, I, I, it's, it's skepticism. It's important. I think if there's, a, there's a level of optimism you need to pair with your skepticism. But skepticism is really important. Like you have to question stuff. You have to question, you know, motives and sort of, and uh, what, what, why do, what, what reason do have people have to say these things or do these things? So. Amen. Totally agree. So you were doing uh PR for a while, but then it looks like you ultimately got kind of got the entrepreneurial bug and, and your first uh, venture looks like, am I saying right? Is it look.io or just look IO? Is that what, like, tell us what that was I, I, and what I, it was. either one will work. <laughs> okay. and, yeah, and, and to call it my first venture is generous. Uh, it was like, I, you know, I always joke that I, pr- I probably tried to start like 10 failed companies before that. Um, <laughs> Look.io was just the first one when the act- we actually went full time, you know, from the get go on. Uh-huh. So I think that was one of the lessons I learned from trying to start side projects and build up little, you know, websites and other apps was that like, if, you, if you're if you not focusing all of your time on it, it's probably not going to take off or you're going to miss some big opportunity. And, you know, I had to learn that a few times over before I really took it to heart. Uh but Look.io was this idea. So my co-founder um, from Look.io, you know, same co-founder for, for Replicated uh, is Mark Campbell. And Mark had this idea for, you know, he was a mobile app developer. Mark is like this incredibly full stack developer, right? So he is like the other half for Replicated. He's the most important half by far. Right. But, uh, you know, and realistically, it's like now the company is much bigger. So like neither of us are really half, but of our founding <laughs> duo, right? You know, of the two of us, Um he, he's the he's the more important of the two of us because he he's come up with he came up with both ideas right both replicated and lookio and lookio came from his experience as a mobile app developer and he really wanted uh, a way to view the screen so look at what his users were doing so he created kind of this like mobile screen share technology that you can embed in different applications and then I was like oh that's really interesting but like we should create a way to to chat with the person on the other end, not just like show them what to do, not to view their screen. And so we added this live chat functionality in. And, uh, and then we started at a startup weekend in, in Los Angeles. Uh, we won that little startup weekend competition. And then from there, I parlayed that into raising $200,000. Nice. Of, you know, well done. Angel investment. <laughs> yeah. Big dollars back then. Paid myself a full $24,000 a year, which was $2,000 a month. Uh, which was not what I needed to live on, but it's just, that's what the salary worked. I, I, I calculated everybody else's salaries and I was like, well, I've got $24,000 <laughs> left over. So it looks like that's my salary. The glamour of uh, a startup founder. What is left yeah. over is your salary. I think that's a, yeah. that's a great lesson for everyone listening. <laughs> yeah. Next time. So then, then after that, I learned to raise by doing the math first, like we you know, <laughs> add up all the salaries and then figure out how much you need to raise, not just, you know, raise a certain amount and then, uh, you know, calculate, yeah, you know, you do things the, the wrong order, it screws things up. Sure. Which is why I always joke when we started Look.io, if, if like starting a company is like swimming across the ocean, when we started Look.io, we just like weren't drowning. Like that's, that's as much progress as we were making. We were just like treading <laughs> water, like right near the shore. Right. Uh, but, but it was great. It was, you know, we, we ended up building this tech and kind of getting a handful of, of companies that probably had no business using technology built by such a tiny little you know, scrappy, you know, duo, uh, you know, we had hotel tonight, which is a pretty big company at the time. They raised, you know, at least a couple, you know, like maybe a couple tens of millions of dollars. 
they embedded our technology into their app and we, they used us to do all the mobile customer support and it was super successful for them. Like they, you know, Sam Shank, their CEO, super bright guy would like get on stage and actually demo it and how it worked and how their customer support agents were able to really, you know, lead this great customer experience. Um, but we learned a lot from that, from that, you know, about fundraising, about company building, about hiring, mm -hmm. you know, we eventually sold it uh, to live person. It took us nine months. And so from start to finish, it was, the company was only nine months old before it was acquired. And, you know, in that time, uh, you know, I realized like, we just, we like kind of got off to the wrong start. Like we, it was, it would have been very hard to build a big company. So an acquisition was like a really good outcome. Plus we were pretty poor at the time. I mean, like relatively poor, you know, for being like, you know, 25, 28, whatever we were, I think Mark was in his early thirties. Uh, and in not really having big salaries and wanting to, you know, you know, build a company. And so this like millions of dollars that came to us, it wasn't, you know, it was a huge acquisition. It was like $5 million acquisition or something. Right. And, but for us, that was more money than we'd ever seen. And so we sold the company to live person and we became their mobile team. And we started to roll our technology out to all these large enterprises. And really that's when we figured out like, okay, there's, there's something to this enterprise software thing. And it seems to be pretty consistent in like, no one, we didn't really understand how people were talking about it. There would be all these things like S SSO. And I'd be like, what does that mean? Is it secure sign on? What are we talking about here? You know, like all these acronyms, all this like jargon. And I was just kind of clueless and constantly trying to understand what people were talking about and kind of always never been afraid to like ask questions and be like, raise my hand in the middle of a meeting with, you know, a big prospect and be like, what, when you say that feature, what do you, what do you actually mean? Like, what is, what do those words mean to you? And, uh, you know, and probably embarrassingly so for some of the other people that work there, but we always would uncover new information or uncover that, like, we didn't have a common vernacular and that they were talking about one thing and we thought they were talking about something else. And so, you know, that became sort of the, the lessons learned about like how to build enterprise software companies and like how to build enterprise features, which ultimately we turned into the enterprise ready guide, you know, it's enterprise ready.io. That was kind of this, this really great resource that we created. And, uh, and that helped, you know, that's, I think it's helped a lot of different you know, folks kind of like us who were building great enterprise software, but didn't really understand all the requirements that were needed. Um, and didn't understand, you know, what exactly does role-based access control or audit logging entail? Yeah, so that, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I, I was just looking there. Like you said, it was uh, just 10 months start to finish. So it sounds like it was uh, if, as much an education for you as it was probably like a huge financial, you know, a windfall event. So, uh, but you said something earlier in there, and I think, you know, lots of people that listen to this podcast, I think lots of people in general, right, they have side projects and they think about starting their own thing. You said something earlier, you said something like, unless it's full time, right, probably won't go anywhere. So for you, it looks like, you know, you had other things you were doing, but what was it? What was the, uh, the magic? Why did you decide ultimately that like, you're going to go full time on look, look IO. Yeah. So the, the project that I had been working on prior, like a couple of projects prior to that, um, a buddy and I, when I was living in Ohio had been building Facebook apps and we were building Facebook apps, like just as they released the Facebook like app API, like even we actually even had like a Facebook app before Facebook apps were popular. Like we had this whole thing we built around Facebook had a couple hundred thousand users. And so we're really well positioned in like the Facebook app ecosystem. And then that market just exploded. But because we were like 
we didn't really want to quit our jobs. We didn't really, you know, we, we didn't go full time on it. All of the opportunity passed us up. And so that's where companies like, you know, there's big mobile gaming companies that were started at that point, right? And things like Living Social even started, you know, as Facebook apps and all of these different companies were just acquiring so many customers uh, and, and really building like a foundation for consumer businesses. And so it was the lesson around like just missed opportunity that I think just said, okay, look, this is a really big opportunity that's sitting in front of you. You can either like try to hack on it a little bit nights and weekends, or you can go all in and really, and really go for it. And I still remember, like, I didn't eat for like a week when I first quit my job, right? I was like, it, was, it, it really is like staring into the abyss, chewing glass, that kind of concept. And you just don't know. It's like, it's so uncertain. We hadn't raised money yet. I was like, you know, I was basically living off of my meager savings. And I was like, well, hopefully I'll figure it out. Um, and obviously that comes from like a somewhat of a position of pr privilege. I didn't grow up rich or anything, but like, I knew that, you know, if I, uh, failed, I could like move back in with my parents in the Midwest into like a crappy, you know, basement or something. So I had a, I had some type of soft landing, but you know, it was just the ability to say, okay, let's take a little risk and try this out. So well, let's go. Well, maybe, maybe in the end, right. There is no, uh, there's no secret other than just to go do it. Right. That seems to kind of what many people say about that. So, well, you mentioned it a minute ago, so let's dive into it. It sounds like, you know, you discovered, oh, enterprise software, that that's pretty good, but you actually went one step further. It looks like you created this whole website, enterprise ready.io that kind of gives you an audit, right. Of how, I don't know. I almost look at it sort of like a SAS audit. Like, are you, how SASified are you? So why don't you tell us what is enterprise ready IO and why did you create it? Yeah, I mean, so it was, you know, it was inspired by these sort of other sites at the time, things like 12factor.net and, uh, you know, user onboarding and a couple of other things that I thought were really interesting, you know, analysis of, of what was happening in the market. It's like as a product person, the way that I think about building features or building tools is I just look at what else other people have done, right? So I think there's like very little kind of like true innovation, but we all iterate on top of what else is out there. And so like we always say like no idea happens in a vacuum and like you're kind of constantly taking, um, you know, inspiration from, from what's going on in the world. And so Enterprise Ready was sort of just like a product manager's guide to building enterprise software features. And so we all like, the, if you looked at for any content about enterprise software, it was always about sales, right? And we we're like, well, I don't care that much about sales. Like I want to build software, not just sell it. Like somebody else figure out how to sell it. And so we started just like writing down all of our thoughts about like, well, how does Slack build, you know, role-based access control? How did, uh, you know, Zendesk do reporting? How did, you know, X, Y, and Z company just would kind of diagnose all of these different features that were done by these kind of high-flying SaaS companies and enterprise software companies to figure out what, what are the best practices? And then we sort of like boiled those down into a requirements doc of sorts and just like wrote out okay, here's what an audit log looks like. Here's all the stuff that you should think about if you're going to build a really good, you know, enterprise ready audit log. And ultimately I think there's maybe like uh, 11 or so features that emerged as the, as the features you should build to be truly enterprise ready. Um, and then part of it was, is selfish, right? Part of it was like, Hey, one of those things is deployment models. And you know, the, the, when you're an enterprise software company, it's no longer like you're just a SaaS company or you're like some legacy on-prem software company, but the whole world is like the spectrum of deployment options in terms of like single tenant hosted, uh, you know, private instances, air gapped instances. And so we wrote a guide out around how to think about deployment options. And, and a lot of that is really just like, 
you know, our core thesis at Replicated. So it was sort of in, in support of the larger vision for Replicated and in support of, hey, these, this is the audience we want to reach. We want to reach people who are thinking about how to take their SaaS product, enterprise software product, and making it more enterprise ready, bring it into the next generation, modernizing it. And so let's build some content for those people. Because I, I truly believe <clears throat> in general, like just in the world, you have to create more value than you capture, right? So employees create more value for companies than they capture or else like you, you wouldn't hire them or you'd pay them less. And so, and then vendors create more value for, you know, for, the, for their customers than they capture or else you wouldn't buy the software, right? So like there's always like a return on investment. And for us, it's like, I wanted to create more value in the world through content and share this knowledge uh, and then figured like we would capture some of it later, right? It's just like plant seeds. And eventually people would say like, hey, we really appreciated that. Or we learned from your guide and like, hey, now we're going to use your product. And of course that's worked because like, turns out it's authentic and people like really good content that they value. And then they look, they look for the associated services. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really nice list. And, you know, it's, uh, I also like the, the assessments. So the way it works is you can go up and you can basically put in your, your name, your email, and then you can, uh, it asks you basically the questions and kind of basically self-assessment, right? Around uh, these 11 categories. And then, <laughs> and then if you want it, it gives you a nice little uh, report card, which can be, I don't know, which can be good or bad, depending on, <laughs> you know, how ready you are. So, but I do think it's a, it's a, it's a fun list because I think uh, I often talk to people, you know, they want to get an enterprise software, they want to build anything. And it's, uh, this list is great because it's always like, well, I don't really care what you're doing. You need these 11 things. And that's great that you're going to do this other thing that is great. And I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. And I know you've just told me how passionate you are, but um, you're still going to need to do role-based access control. And they're still going to ask you when you show up to do this. So so don't be surprised that at the end, they're not as excited as you are and you don't have role-based access control. That That's not going to go well, right? They're going to ask you when that's coming. So it's a good... Uh, I don't know. It's sort of like, uh, should I say it's like a, the vegetable list? It's like, hey, you got to do this. You have to do this. Whether yeah, yeah, you want like, to or not, you're going to do it. So just accept it quickly. Yeah, yeah. we call it the, the table stakes features, right? These are the things that are, you know, everybody in the enterprise software company talks about, well, that's table stakes. That's table stakes. At least what he did, you know, ones we've worked at. And so this was like, well, let's just list out what are the table stakes? What do you need in order to like actually have a conversation with a larger organization about adopting your tool? And like, turns out these things are those. All right, well, let's do this. There's too many. We're not going to go through them all. Uh, that We'll leave it. Uh, yeah. Everyone can go to enterpriseready.io and check them all out. But I just say, I'll get, here, here, here's two possible questions. Like, what is either the most overlooked one? If you were to like say, hey, people, even people that are experienced overlook it, or which one do you think is uh, harder than, than it uh, potentially looks when you have to actually go do it? Which one would you pick out? Yeah, so uh, I think the most overlooked one is the audit logging. Like it's just so important and, you, and it, people do it wrong and it's like, it's, and it's, it's complicated. So doing a really good audit log, very few people have it. The other one that I'd say is, uh, is sort of like just done poorly, but oftentimes people have it is reporting because reporting means so much to different people. And it's really hard to get right because like ultimately you want people to have lots of knobs and gears to turn in terms of the reports they create and like, that's a massive effort in order to make that happen. So those are my two. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I think, uh, you know, I always think the mistake on the audit log a lot of times is uh, it has to be immutable. A lot of times people will just like be like, hey, I just wrote it all in the text file. And it's like, no, it's not really an audit log. That's just a text file. So you, so that's like, I feel like that's the number one mistake. And yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Reporting, 
you know, you think you get a couple of reports and then it's just like, oh no, now they want to export the data. Oh no. Now they want an analysis yep. and you're like, oh, th- we're going to be here a while. <laughs> so, all yep, right. Exactly. Everyone go check out enterprise ready, uh, dot IO. And you know, you can, you can decide for yourself, which is the hardest. So, all right, well that brings us up to like where you are today. So you're out, you started replicated. Um, you mentioned your co-founder already, but for everybody, what exactly is replicated and why did you guys decide to start this one? Yeah, I mean, so what it is today, right, is, is it's a, a way to sort of operationalize and scale the delivery of a cloud native product into complex enterprise environments. And so when we started, we started it in thinking, you know, we're, like we were SaaS people and we were like, let's build a platform for SaaS companies to easily package their application and deploy it into enterprise customer environments. So like, quote unquote, like on-prem, right? And, and that is still like part of the use case, like still part of the core use case. Um, but ultimately, as we built this and as the ecosystem, the market evolved, what happened is Kubernetes became like the de facto solution for packaging and building and deploying and managing applications. It became almost like a substrate by which new applications could be delivered and, and sort of shared with, with, uh, with enterprises. And so as that happened, we kind of needed to evolve the value proposition of replicated away from packaging and more to this like operationalize and scale concept, right? So turns out you still have to sort of, you know, collaborate with all of the different, you know, functions inside of an enterprise software company that's release engineering and QA and support and sales engineering in order to successfully implement you know, hundreds or thousands of, of private instances of your software. And so the whole concept of replicated is like, like applications are now based in Kubernetes. And instead of delivering like a binary, like a jar war and exe uh, with a huge manual guide, like a 127 page install guide, you can deliver Kubernetes application with like manifests that describe how the application runs. And it takes a lot less manual effort to actually like deploy the, a version of that, in, of that application in your own environment. And in that time that like, you know, we've automated everything, the world has also moved to like the public cloud. And so most of these customers aren't actually deploying, you know, these like on-prem instances in true on-prem data centers, but instead like an enterprise customer comes to you and they want to run your application in their own AWS account. So it's like, how do I get this spun up in AWS or in Azure or in GCP or in like name your hyper cloud provider? without, you know, you, without me sending all my data to your SaaS product, I'm going to run a private version of your SaaS product in my own, you know, public cloud account. And so like that takes away a lot of the infrastructure challenges that traditional on-prem software used to have, right? Like you talk, you read like Benioff's book from 20 years ago or 50 years ago. I can't remember how old that guy is. Uh, and you see like, you know, he's talking about on-prem software in, in this like context of, Oh, you got to provision these servers and rack and stack all these machines. And it's, it's so hard to use and it takes, you know, six months to implement and to update and to, to manage. And it's like, well, that, that's old on-prem software. That's terrible. Like we should destroy that. And what we should destroy it with, like, sure, some of it might move to SaaS, but we could also destroy it with like really amazing, easy to use on-prem software and just evolve what on-prem software means to sort of this multi-prem concept where instead of like, needing to deploy it in like a traditional on-prem data center or some server closet, you can actually deploy other people's third-party applications in your own, you know, Amazon VPC or Google, you know, cloud account. So 
Yeah. So I I noticed you guys use the phrase a lot, like modern on-prem. So is that what you mean? You really kind of mean like deploying that software into a hyperscaler of choice and, you know, having someone take care of the infrastructure and it's sort of on-prem, but it's, I guess it's within your control, but really in another hyperscaler. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like, and it's this new architecture, right? Because now it's a single architecture that you could use and host a SaaS application, or it's an architecture that you can deliver to your customer to deploy. And it's like, all the same manifest, all the same you know, underlying bits and all the same automation. And because Kubernetes is this common API that can kind of live across all of these different compute environments, it really doesn't matter, right? Like, and because so much of that like operational knowledge is baked into those manifests or those operators, or those Helm charts, like you don't really have to be an expert in running it, right? Like you kind of need to just focus on keeping Kubernetes up and running or having a platform provider that does that. And then you just deliver the applications into it. And so, you know, we're not like completely there, right? It's like, you know, the, the world's not fully self-healing applications, but we're getting pretty close. Right. And, you know, and we've been working with companies. So our customers are folks like, you know, so are the actual software vendors. So we work with, you know, HashiCorp and CircleCI and Datastax and Puppet and UiPath and the, you know, and the hundred other software vendors who use our tooling to actually distribute the enterprise instances of those products. And so, you know, we end up being used by, you know, 60 plus percent of the Fortune 100 to actually manage those products. Because if you think about replicated, there's these like two direct customers, right? There's like the vendor who's going to package up their application and deliver it to all of these, you know, hundreds of enterprise instances. And then there's like the enterprise end user, like the corporate IT admin who's receiving the install instructions. And those install instructions are basically like white labeled versions of you know, the replicated installation and COTS installation product. And so, you know, they're kind of our customer too, because they're using our UI, they're using like, you know, our open source tooling to actually manage and configure and back up and integrate uh, the, the, you know, their private instance of that, you know, vendor application. Got it. So is that the customer base and is it really designed for vendors, if you will, to like as almost package up? Are you also selling to like direct enterprises or kind of like the the downstream user? Like is... How do you kind of segment your your customer base? Yeah, we today we sell only to the software vendor. So okay. you know, all of our customers are you know these uh, these emerging software vendors. Some are some are actually SaaS companies that are doing on prem for the first time. Some are open core software companies. You know, folks like Datastax and Puppet, where they have you know a, a community edition and they want to create the enterprise edition. And they use Replicated to do that. And then some are traditional on prem software companies that have been deploying you know binaries or jars or wars whatever the last 10, 20 years, but they're, they're sort of modernizing to a Kubernetes stack to get that, you know, all the benefits of, of, you know, sort of the patterns and primitives of of reliability that Kubernetes provides for their customers to run in their own environment. Um, And so as they make that transition, turns out they all need the same tooling around like release channel channels and licensing and like cross-functional collaboration. And then that whole admin console and all the configuration and, you know, backups, et cetera. So it's, it's like, the same product, but these like three slightly unique customer profiles. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. So really it's anybody that sort of needs to package up their application on top of Kubernetes to make it run. They should call you. They should, they should not be doing it themselves. Cause I assume that would be like write it all themselves um, and, and live with that. Yeah, day, yeah, exactly. Or they can call you and maybe do it a little bit faster is my guess. Yeah. I always laugh. There's always like, you know, a couple of engineers who are like, Oh, we can build some of this tooling and, you know, give us a couple of weeks or a couple months and we'll get something done. And then my, my question to execs is always like, great. And like, and then after those people move on 
to a different project and like forget about this completely like how do what's your plan then and like if they leave the company who who like transitions that technology uh th these like sort of complementary or sort of like ancillary products that people create are basically like the the legacy code of tomorrow right so if, if it's not your core product and you're building something that you could be buying you're you're basically just writing legacy code before you like before you've even you know committed it to the repo and uh and so people get it and they're like look we want this to be an important part of our software delivery pipeline to our most important customers for the next 10 years and so as that like you know, do I want to have a vendor that's going to be around that has, you know, other amazing customers that are using them just for this is the only problem that they care about? Or do I want to hire, you know, don't want to move uh, a couple of engineers and a product manager and a security, you know, pro and a bunch of other people onto this sort of like release and update and management system. And so, no, I, listen, know, hey, in my experience, it's always player. a weekend. That's what everyone says. They're always like, I could write this in a weekend. Right. I'm like, man, these weekends, everyone has different weekends than me. I can barely do anything in a weekend. That's what I've learned. I can barely, <laughs> you know, get the grass cut and survive. So, uh, but yes, I'm with you. I'm with you on it. All right. So that's who should call you to do it. Now let's, let's dive a little bit into some of the technology. I'm sure everyone listening knows a little bit more. So I think, you know, one thing I want to start with is sort of like, you know, I, it looks like you've built out, I'm going to call it KURL. I'm always scared when people like invent their own names. Am I saying it right? Is it curl? Is it KURL? But maybe you could tell us like what, what that one, you should tell me how to say it. And two, what is it you built here and why is it so good? Yeah, those are, those are both great. Actually. I like, uh, I like KURL and, and we, and we call it curl sometimes too. Um, so those are great. It, the whole idea is it's like, you know, it's a Kubernetes URL, right? It's, it's this, it's a declarative way to describe the add-ons that are needed to run like a production grade Kubernetes cluster. And so it's, it's just about how do I create a packaged Kubernetes that, that has ingress and storage and networking, and I can define, you know, which versions of those and different features of those sort of in this declarative manifest. Um, and then it's kind of like, so it's not really a distro as much as it is a distro creator. Right. Because ultimately, that's what a that's what a distro is, or a distro just like takes those different you know kind of uh, packages and, and puts a stamp on it. And so we do this because um, it turns out in in the market today, or if you're a software vendor, uh, and then we have some data around this that supports this, uh, you know what you're going to do is you're you're going to start to talk to your customers. You're going to realize that like of the hundred enterprises you're talking to, they're all sort of like on you know different part of the adoption curve. For Kubernetes, right? And so what we see today, which is you know different from what we saw a year ago, is that now it's about 50% of those enterprises actually have a Kubernetes cluster for you to deploy your application to. So we call that like the existing cluster deployment. And and replicated fully supports that. And like, you know, that's that's a core part of the feature set. But for those other 50%, they need Kubernetes. They need you to like set up an environment. So you could either like tell them, hey, go download this distro or that distro. Um, or if you, you know, are a replicated customer, then you just like have access to this curl cluster that can be installed with one line, extended, you know, to multiple nodes with an additional, you know, cur you know curl pipe bash. And, uh, and it will basically set up a Kubernetes cluster unlike modern 64-bit Linux, you know, any of these cloud environments. We run a bunch of tests around it. We validate that it works. But that way, your customers who don't know much about Kubernetes can easily get an environment set up and then we'll set up the administrative console on top of that. And then we'll bring your application on top of that in sort of a seamless way. 
So unlike, you know, if you tell them to go install OpenShift and then in install you from the marketplace, you're basically telling your customer, go get this huge platform and then like go find my little listing inside of the platform and install it. Uh, this is like, oh, just run this like kind of prepackaged solution and it's going to set up my app and, you know, prepare you for the whole way through. It's nice. And so does it manage the dependencies as well? I mean, that's always kind of the tricky part of a lot of times when you're doing this and it's like, even when you're using a package manager, like maybe on your Mac, right? It's like, oh, I got to have the, the right Python. Or I got to have the right this, right this. And it, it's, uh, for me, someone never wants to do any of that. It's just great when it just figures it out and you just kind of watch the command line scroll. So is that, do I get kind of a similar experience with curl? Yeah, you get you exactly. So that declarative manifest that you describe all of your different add-ons, you know, that's what we call the dependencies of these add-ons, right? And uh, and that's going to you could you can set them all to latest, and we'll just like give you the sort of latest version of each of these that we have verified, or you can pin it to different versions and sort of you know manage it yourself as you want to roll it out. Um, different companies do different things depending on you know like how how involved they want to be in this release process. Uh, you know, obviously pinning gives them a little more control. Um, and then, you know, using latest gives, you know, just is that them trusting us a little bit more to, to provide a workable Kubernetes cluster. Nice, nice. And now you've also created this other thing called COTS, K-O-T-S, and it's uh, Kubernetes off the shelf. I think one, just great acronyms. Companies just on, on fire. I love all these. But uh, <laughs> Kubernetes off the shelf. So um, kind of explain, like, how does that work? How does it interact with curl or if it interacts with curl? How, what is that? Yeah, so the the way that sort of COTS in so we have the we have you know really three primary core open source projects. It's curl at the at the foundation and then COTS and troubleshoot. And so they sort of Voltron up together to create this really amazing solution for delivering your software into enterprise environments. Uh, curl again is that like cluster that you, you know, if your customer doesn't have Kubernetes, so that's only used in 50% of the installs. The other, you know, the rest, but all the other installs, including those curl installs, we bring up this layer that we call COTS, which is an administrative console um, and some CLI tooling around how do you actually sort of operate and integrate this application into your customer's environment. So both of these, I mean, all three of these are totally open source. Uh, and what COTS is, is about is like, you know, you can define a handful of additional custom resources as the application vendor. And when you do that, it invokes different features and functionality within COTS. So you can invoke the configuration screen. You can invoke the backup and restore functionality. You can invoke, you know, the support bundle. And, you, and it basically allows you to uh, produce these little manifests that then make COTS sort of customized for your application. And, and with that, you end up with what I think is probably the best admin experience for any on-prem software that exists. It has some really amazing kind of next generation functionality. We're big fans of GitOps. And so like, we love this idea of GitOps everywhere. And so we even, you know, part of what COTS does is sort of bring like GitOps for third-party applications. And so if I'm a corporate IT admin and I want to, you know, be, if I want to run 20 different applications, instead of having to set up each of them independently and like use a dashboard to like manage the updates, I can actually just like hook in my internal version control system, hook in my internal registry. And anytime there's an update, we're automatically going to download all those images, retag and push them into your registry. So that way you can run them through whatever scans you might do, validate the images are all, all look okay. And then we're going to take those new image locations plus any like like last mile configurations done through customize, 
which is this whole system for, you know, doing, uh, you know, sort of configuration in, in a inheritance kind of way. But uh, we don't need to get into details of that. What matters is we take those manifests and then we commit them into the internal version control system uh, that the enterprise is using. So now instead of clicking a button to like, you know, deploy this latest version, I'm looking at a merge request or a pull request. And, you know, it has all the changes there in, you know, throughout history. And so you can know what I'm running at any point. And we think that's just like one of the coolest ways to run third-party software because it's automated. It piggybacks on top of the existing tooling that I'm using. You know, it can leverage whatever GitOps operator or CI deployment process I have. And it's just deploying software like I deploy all the other software that I have. And so things like that, that that we've introduced into this product just make it like a first class, you know, experience for managing, you know, like kind of, you know, Kubernetes off the shelf software. Right. Well, I think this is what everyone's talking about and talking about digital transformation, right? Like deliver value to the business. Don't spend a lot of time on infrastructure. So that's, you know, to me, that's what COTS is like, you know, you're, you're like, you're there, right? Like that, like this, I can get this and just get it working. So, well, let's just run through a quick like use case. So let's just assume I'm a vendor. Let's say I built the, I don't know, the next great monitoring system because we don't have enough monitoring systems in the world, but I call you. I built it on Kubernetes. I'm like, Grant, you need to help me. So one, what do I buy from you? And then two, when I get it, what do I, what do I need to do to start using Replicated? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first thing I would do is I would connect you to our incredible sales team. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, no, I mean, so, you know, if, you, if you've built a great Kubernetes application and you want to start rolling it out to lots of enterprise customers, o- oftentimes, you know, we always say like, look, if you haven't deployed it to like, you know, if you don't have any customers yet, maybe just publish a Helm chart, right? The easiest way to kind of go test this out, work directly with your customers, use a Helm chart. But as soon as you're ready to really scale this out to, you know, tens, hundreds, or thousands of different enterprises, that's when Replicate is really helpful, right? Because that's when you're going to need all the tooling that we have around, you know, how to package this correctly, how to work with your different teams, how to keep, you know, you should know, the different adoption rates that you're seeing across different versions of your software. And like, you know, we have all that information, right? So it, it's, it's really about when you really want to scale this. Um, and what you're getting from us is you're getting access to this vendor portal that has, you know, release channels and licensing and all these different things that you would have to think that you, one, you don't even know that you need when you start most of the time. Most of the time you're like, oh, well, that's a good idea. I need that. Oh, I need that. I need that. And so it's this list of tooling and functionality and, and frameworks and workflows that you would you would eventually discover that you need to build, but Replicated already has them. So uh, you would just you know sign up and integrate your Helm charts or your operators or your manifests into this release channel. Um, you create a release, you create a license, you would send that to a customer, you'd send them an installation instruction, and then they would get up and running. And then you're just gonna you know hook us into your CI system. So every time you're pushing a new version. We can deliver that down to your customers automatically. They can then, you know, deploy it through whatever methodology they want. And uh, yeah, and just, you know, try to make it simple. You know, if they need support, there's a whole framework for collecting all the logs and, and commands, analyzing it in the cluster before they ever have to send it off to your team. They do have to send it off to your team. There's like a framework for redaction that creates a redaction report. They can submit the security team. So it's like, we just try to think about all the interactions that we can streamline between that software vendor and that corporate IT admin and all the personas that sort of like are, you know, secondary, uh, you know, sort of stakeholders in that relationship and just 
build tooling that makes their lives easier. I like it. I think it's kind of almost back to our enterprise ready uh, IO conversation. You can either uh, do all this on your own and learn the hard way. <laughs> or you can go look up the 11 things that you should consider when you're building SaaS. And I think it's maybe the same thing here. It's like, I think there are two si- two types of people listening to this right, uh, podcast right now. It's one is they have uh, built all of this and discovered how incredibly painful this is, right? And they're probably nodding their heads like, yep, I can see the value of replicated. And then there's people that have not experienced it and are like, but I think I could do it in a weekend. So I, I think maybe we'll just, <laughs> we'll speak to them and say, maybe may, before you'd spend the weekend doing it, Maybe take a look at what Replicated has to offer. Um, oh, I'd rather talk to the people that have already they've already built it. That's the true. They're that, like, ready. They, they come in and they're like, like, take my money. Like we're <laughs> we're so tired of doing this, or like there's so much pain. So, I think yeah. we would call them uh, qualified leads to your salespeople. Yeah, they would yeah. be very qualified. Exactly. You would not have to spend a lot of time explaining the problem to them. So yeah, so <laughs> yeah, and then I guess everyone else after you spend the weekend and you, and you've you've been uh, sufficiently scarred, you can call Grant and and he can help. Yeah. You, so. It's funny. I, I, I often talk about like this build versus buy concept, right? And like, you know, why should you be building? Why should you be buying? And uh, and now I just call it like, you know, um, buy now versus buy later. Like it's not, <laughs> there's no, there's no build. It's like building just means buy later. Yeah, that's no, true. It's like pain now, <laughs> buy later yeah, exactly. or, or just buy now. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's the other way to do it. Okay. Well, uh, we're pretty much out of time here, but let's, let's, uh, we've talked about what we could do, but if I am ready to get started, uh, how can I contact you? How do I get started with Replicated? What should I do? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, go to replicated.com, uh, request a demo or, you know, shoot us an email, whatever, whatever works for you. We're, we're always available. Um, you can even, you know, just like sign up and try to, you know, try to use it. Uh, the docs are available. Ask us questions, you know, check out the open source, whatever makes sense. Like we're, we're, we really, um, we always talk about like trying to make sure that our, our relationships are long-term oriented. So, you know, when companies come to us and they're not ready, like we're all, our, our responses, we'll, we'll be here. We'll be here in two years, three years, whenever you're ready. So like, there's no pressure. Just, just come talk to us whenever you think this could be the right solution for you. Uh, and in the meantime, like, you know, use our open source, like ask us questions. We, we want to be helpful. This is a pretty small ecosystem in general. So we, we think it's pretty important to be good actors. And so, you know, let us know what we can do to help. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I think, um, also, for those that maybe want to uh, talk about the, the SaaS features, I'll just say go check out EnterpriseReady.io. And also, you have a podcast. Do you want to plug that real fast? Like, what's the Enterprise Ready podcast all about? Yeah, Enterprise Ready podcast. We just uh, we bring on founders and CEOs and ask them about their journey in terms of building enterprise software companies. So have a couple of really great ones that are going to publish soon. Uh, one with Jay Simons from Atlassian. He was the president there for like 10 or 12 years. Um, that was a killer one. One with... Uh, Shannon from Rancher. That was amazing. So there's, there's going to be some great ones dropping. We have some, you know, in, in the archives, there's folks like, you know, Adam Jacob from Chef or uh, Tom Preston Warner from, from GitHub, Peter from Segment. There's a really, you know, great list of, of stories here about how people build, you know, big enterprise software companies. Yeah, those are, those that list sounds great. Some of those uh, we've had a, a few of those people on the show as well, and they're always just fantastic to learn from. So that would definitely be great. And also, I'll just let everyone know all these links are in the show notes. I'm also going to put uh, a link to Grant's Twitter, his LinkedIn. So I'm sure he will uh, answer you. You find him, find him however you can. So Grant, with that, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was great being here. And just uh, quickly, if this is the first time you've ever heard Software Defined Talk, well, welcome. You can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com or probably right now in your podcast player and you can subscribe. 
Also, if you want a Software Defined Talk sticker, just send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. Be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.